Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Cleansing Protection Magic, Damien Keller, binaural production engineer, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in becoming contributors to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll see all different ways to contribute, and check it out. And now, without any further ado, my guest for today is 8P Sylvia, and he is the vampire guy. Thanks for coming <laughs> on again. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Uh, so I see that you have made it another year without getting a stake through the heart. <laughs> no. Uh, Gary, I'm getting, I'm getting some distortion on my end uh, with your voice. Yeah, it happens sometimes, but it doesn't show up in the recording. Okay, sounds good. Um, so what got you interested in vampire lore? Well, you know, I've, uh, I've always been interested, uh, in the supernatural. Um, you know, ever since I was a kid, I, uh, I like spooky stories and, uh, you know, things about the paranormal and that kind of stuff. Um, but what really kind of, uh, set me on the vampire track was, uh, a few years ago now I was in, uh, I was in New York city in times square, and um, I was uh, I was walking around with my it was my then girlfriend, my wife now. Uh, and, you know, we're kind of checking things out and, you know, the bright lights of Times Square and all mm-hmm. that. And people are, you know, uh, uh, you know, hustle and bustle. And we come across a Ripley's Believe It or Not uh, auditorium. And uh, I love Ripley's. I don't know if you've ever been to one or not. I've never been to it, but uh, I used to watch the show when I was a kid all the time. Oh yeah, that was uh, that was uh, a great great show, and so I've I've been to a couple different Ripley's, and they're 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 a ton of fun. They've got all kinds of great exhibits and stuff like that, you know, strange things, oddities, and stuff. So we we go in. I had I've said, oh, we've got to go in. And as I'm walking around there, uh, there's one uh, object on display. It's this um, kind of vintage looking box. And it has these vials in it, and uh, it's got a stake and uh, a, a mold for making silver bullets and stuff. And it's labeled as a 19th century uh, vampire killing kit. And I thought that was just the coolest thing. Uh, it just had this great aesthetic to it. It, it looked great. And um, you know, afterwards, after that trip, I was like, I was thinking more about that kit. I'm like, oh, what's this? What's the story behind that? And so I start, I, you know, I take to the internet and I start looking it up and I actually find out that there's a little bit of controversy surrounding them uh, in terms of, you know, some people argue that they are authentic pieces from the 1800s and other people say, well, no, these are actually, um, you know, modern creations using vintage pieces. And one of the arguments why was that like, well, these things, they reflect, uh, you know, vampire pop culture, vampires, vampire mm-hmm. movies and stuff like that. And they don't reflect the folklore. And I'm like, well, what is the folklore? Like, what, you know, when, when people say that, what does that really mean? Because I had some sense just from watching like documentaries uh, that, you know, what people actually believed about vampires, you know, in the past was somewhat different than what we're used to in movies. Um, and so then I started, I started thinking to myself like, well, I kind of want to break down, like someone go through everything and tell me like, what, 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 what is, 
you know, what constitutes uh, a folklore vampire and how does that differ from uh, from what we what we're used to in in movies and stuff? And I really wanted a trait by trait breakdown, you know, well, you know, the blood sucking and the this and the that and the garlic. I'm like, what? Well, you know, what's accurate and what isn't uh, in terms of folklore? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find that list. No one no one seemed to have it. No one seemed to break it down that way. And I started looking into it more and more and I ended up writing a book about it. And that's how I got the, my my book, Vampires of Lore, Traits and Modern Misconceptions. So is there a difference between vampire lore and the traditional story about, like, um, the writing of Dracula, which was based on, like, Velaz and Paler? Sure. So, Sto- so Stoker did quite a bit of uh, research when he when he wrote that book, and he read some he read some different articles about vampire folklore. So he incorporated uh, he incorporated some of that into his book, but at the same time, he also incorporated some nineteenth um, century literary trends in vampires that were present in other like gothic stories so uh so some of what you read in Dracula kind mm. of is you know kind of is accurate say to folklore other other stuff reflects kind of the literary tradition of vampires and then um you know the the stuff about he did read very briefly about Vlad the Impaler um but Stoker actually for from what from what we can actually tell from his notes and stuff like that he didn't know very much about Vlad the Impaler at all he read mm-hmm. kind of like a little thing about him and he kind of included like this one particular reference um in the book in the book and he used the name Dracula mm-hmm. uh which was which was kind of one of which was uh kind of one of Vlad's one of Vlad's names Interesting. So what were the earliest reports of vampirism? Well, it's it's uh, it's hard to say kind of when where you want to pinpoint. It sort of depends on sort of how you want to define uh, what a vampire is. Um, I think that, you know, there's different kind of. uh, I mean, there's some sort of supernatural beliefs that I think go back to, you know, sort of the, the murky past. uh, In that sort of in that sort of thing, you know, sort of classical tales and whatnot. For example, right, like in um, in the Odyssey, right, that the the you know the the classic tale Odysseus, and he's mm-hmm. you know he's he's journeying journeying. Um, yeah, there's one part where he goes to uh, the the entrance to Hades uh, because he ne- he needs to talk someone talk to someone who had passed away, and so he has his his men dig a trench and they fill it with animal blood and suddenly all like the the shades the ghosts of Hades start approaching it and the ones that he lets drink the blood then can speak with him right so by drinking some of that blood like their vitality is kind of restored in some sense so like there's there's kind of uh there's there's notions about about this i think that go back to you know classical times and before um but you know to say like, well, what, when did the, when, you know, when can we find a, you know, a good example of a vampire? Um, for me, one of, one of the, one of the earlier ones that I found that I really liked dated from the 12th century in, uh, in mm. the UK, there was an account of, uh, they didn't use the term vampire, right. um, different places call them different things. Um, but there's one from that period that I, that I really like. Um, but, for, but as part of writing my book, I sort of had to begin with defining like, well, what is a vampire? What, what constitutes a vampire? Good question. Because yeah, be, because when you when you look at it, when you start researching these things, suddenly you're gonna you'll find all kinds of of you know folk tales and beliefs about monsters and stuff. No, there was a monster that lived in the forest, and if you journeyed in, he would drink your blood. 
you know, like, well, is that a vampire? Well, it's really more of like a monster or an ogre or something, right? Like it, it really, um, it, it depends. It depends. So I, I kind of came up with this criteria of like, okay, for, for me and for the purposes of my book, I said, there's three criteria that, that, you know, something needs to kind of fit in order to, to meet, in order to stay for my purposes, this is a vampire. And the first, the first bit, the first piece was that it has to be, you know, the corpse of a once living person, right? So it was a, it was a person that was alive at one point and now, and now they're dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of, um, by saying that I kind of remove a lot of like supernatural other like supernatural creatures, whether it's like demons or witches that are still alive, like there's, you know, right. and things like that, because they often like, there's a, a, in, you know, in Greek mythology, there was like a, a monster known as an impusa, which, which would uh, drink blood and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it often comes up in vampire stories, but it was never human to begin with. It was right. always like this other kind of creature. Okay. So that was my first so, criteria. So how do you, how do you separate that though from a zombie? Well, that's an interesting thing. Uh, you know, it's, and again, we kind of get into some of this pop culture stuff about, well, what's, what's a vampire versus what's a zombie. <laughs> and I think like zombie movies, there's a very sort of kind of, they're sort of a, a decaying corpse kind of shuffling around. And honestly, folkloric vampires are kind of closer to zombies in some ways than, than kind of we, what we think of like the aristocratic, like, you know, uh, top hat and tails kind of vampire, you know, e- you know, evening dress. Um, but sort of the, the, uh, my other criteria for it was that, well, the corpse has to be causing, um, has, to, has to be harming the living in some way. Mm. So, for, for, so that can be blood drinking, but it could be other things. So when you look at folklore, when you look at the folklore, it, it kind of varies a bit in sort of what a vampire might be up to or what these undead, let's say, might be up to. And then uh, lastly, uh, it was, my, my third criteria was that um, in order to remove the threat of the vampire, action has to be taken against the corpse itself. So this kind of comes into the physicality of vampires and actually kind of think makes you think of zombies too, mm-hmm. where, you know, it's not like a ghost or a spirit or something like that, where it's kind of ethereal um, vampires. There's a physicality to them. Like, you know, people believe that there was a real threat living in the graveyard in their village and they had to do something about it. Um, so that's, that's kind of where, where it, uh, where it's, where I kind of landed with it for, mm-hmm. for my thing. What's the second thing? Oh, no, that, that was, those are the three. So the second, so the second one mm-hmm. was that it's harming the living. And then the third thing was that you need to take action against the corpse to kill it. So okay. those were the, th- so those were kind of the three. And So, and when so, I, so when drinking I, blood isn't a requirement? So I would say it's harming the living. Blood drinking comes into them, but there are vampire, there are vampire stories where people are saying, oh, the vampire came to me in the night and it strangled me, uh, you know, and and that, you know, it strangled me, it it crushed me, that kind of thing. And then when they go and they exhume the vampire, the supposed vampire, they look at the corpse, they see blood around the mouth. And then suddenly the story is, oh, that's the blood that he, that he must've been drinking from people. There's an account, it was actually, was in newspapers from the 1700s where this happened. So the blood drinking only suddenly comes into play once they actually look at the corpse and they see blood around the mouth, uh, which can actually happen in the decomposition process. Mm -hmm. And suddenly now that's there. So if you just focus on blood drinking, for these stories and you discount like anything else, I feel like you sort of, you lose valuable information. You're going to lose valuable stories that I think kind of come into play and sort of give you uh, a fuller picture of what 
what the folkloric beliefs were and kind of ultimately where, where the kind of the people's fears and focus were on these kinds of things. Because I think a lot of it's, it was kind of a, a psychological reaction to what was going on in communities. Yeah. So F one, now that we've defined a vampire, how did they start figuring out how to kill the vampire in such strange ways? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think there's, there's, well, there was a few different ways to, to deal with vampires. Um, but I, I would say one of, you know, probably one of the most famous ones we, we think of is a stake through the heart, mm -hmm. right? Like that, that, that's, you know, that's always, uh, that's always a good go-to for movies. Uh, it's my I favorite. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good one, right? Um, I think sometimes there's, uh, in modern views of it, I feel like there's almost kind of a magical association to it. Like, oh, the wooden stake through the heart for some reason kills the vampire, right? Like if it was something else, maybe it wouldn't or whatever. Like it's, it's like, that's just the weakness they have. Like heart, heart with the stake, with the wooden stake done. Um, when you look at the folkloric account, when you look at what people wrote about it, they would actually sometimes use a very kind of, they would phrase it a kind of a certain way. And they would, they would say like that the, the people um, drove a stake through the corpse, pinning it to the ground. And so this is an interesting point where suddenly you, you kind of, you get away from, from like, well, that's just the weakness they have of like a stake through the heart where mm -hmm. the stake was actually serving a practical function and it was, pinning the corpse in the ground so that it couldn't sit up anymore right it was actually stuck there the way you'd like you hmm. know put a tent in the ground <laughs> um and a lot of the, a lot of the ways to kill vampires in folklore actually kind of came from these kind of sort of practical views of like how to stop a corpse from attacking you so the stake in the stake pinning them to the ground would be one also sort of, in, of interesting note with stakes is that sometimes the wood was was considered important like you had to use a certain kind of wood for mm -hmm. it to work, uh, which which is kind of cool. Um, but I think with also the stake, too, if you did it through the heart, you're destroying the heart. There was also beliefs of you would remove the heart and burn it. Um, you might cut off the head of the vampire. Uh, usually when push came to shove within it with these things, uh, kind of the last resort would be burning the corpse entirely. They would burn the vampire to ashes and maybe throw the ashes into the into the river or something like that. So a lot of it always came down to how can we stop this thing from getting up out of the ground and attacking us? And so that just came in different forms. Well, if you cut off his head and put it at the head at its feet, it won't know. It, you know, it won't be able to operate anymore. Or if you just destroy it outright, it won't be able to operate anymore. Um, there was actually one one belief where they would take um, well they were they were distaffs which are used for like spinning spinning yarn but they look like stakes they would take these things and put them into the ground above where the person was buried so if they tried to rise as a vampire they would stake themselves. Hmm. Interesting. So what is it that caused these corpses to come back to life to begin with? Well, it was. Um, well, ultimately, it, it was it was uh, kind of people's <laughs> misunderstanding and interpretation of what was what was happening in, in their community. So a, a lot of these tales kind of follow a certain kind of pattern where, um, you know, you would have, you know, you would have someone who maybe was se seemingly healthy or something like that would die. 
um, would get ill, get sick, and they'd pass away. And then maybe another person would get ill and pass away. And then another person would start to would start to decline. And um, to to people, um, you know, seventeen hundreds and eighteen hundreds, uh, especially you know in the rural areas, they they wouldn't they didn't know they didn't necessarily know what to make of this, right? They didn't have they didn't have the understanding we do today, all right, of you know germ theory or communicable disease and that kind of thing. So they're just looking at like, well, something's wrong here. We're seeing people who are healthy, they're, they were, they're, you know, they were up and about, and now suddenly they're being taken ill, something is wrong. And so they would, the suspicion would then fall upon the deceased. They go, well, you know, this all started when this person first passed away, right? Well, maybe we need to look at, at these people who have passed away and see if everything makes sense. See if, you know, see what's going on. So they would exhume a corpse of someone who was, you know, maybe who, you know, they might have suspected. Mm -hmm. And they would see things that they were not expecting in the corpse. Um, these things that I think would even surprise us today, but are actually normal parts of the decomposition process. So they would, so normally when you think of, you know, a body decaying in the ground, you think it's somewhere on the way to being a skeleton, right? It's like somewhere between where they looked in life and skeleton, mm -hmm. somewhere, somewhere in that, in that range. Um, but actually depending on various factors, different things can happen. So, you know, these, the, you know, these people might, they'd exhume the corpse and they might look at this person and they might seem, they might seem unnatural to their eyes, unnaturally preserved. They might seem, uh, they might seem fresh. Uh, they might actually seem like they've gained weight, like they're actually bloated, um, which, you know, they might look sort of like healthy, you know, mm -hmm. and red in the face. They might actually look like healthier in death than they did in life. Um, that might, um, they might see that there was, um, what looks, what looks like blood around the mouth. Uh, it might look like, um, there were, there was new skin or new fingernails. All of these things that they're, that they're seeing, they were misunderstanding what was going on. But to them, these were all signs. These were all indications that something unnatural was happening, that this person was sort of, uh, was perhaps stealing life from the living and thus preserving some, some form of vitality in the grave. And so I think that, that often kind of played into, uh, you know, the, these, these vampire beliefs. Interesting. So if they had COVID back then, that could have been just another vampire story. I, I mean, any, any kind, any kind of, you know, sort of disease that was kind yeah. of going through a community, you have to understand too, people, you know, you know, in centuries ago and say, they, they believed that, you know, the supernatural was very much had a very real impact on their daily lives, potentially. So if something bad, if you were experiencing like a drought or something like that, people would look to supernatural causes for things. Um, and so sometimes blame would fall on the dead with, you know, it's, it's the dead that are causing this illness or it's the dead that's causing a drought. There were, there were times when people exhumed a corpse because they thought it was causing a drought. Um, or quite sadly, suspicion might fall on the living. And that's when you get, you know, witch trials and things like mm. that. So then when did the other things come into play, like silver boys, garlic, um, them having to be invited in. Sure. So there, there, there's, there's a lot there. Um, so some of that stuff is a bit more, is, uh, 
we can some of it we can thank literature some of it we can we can some of it is folk is true to folklore um silver bullets i do a chat i i do a chapter in my book about silver bullets that was one that was that i found um particularly intriguing by and large silver bullets are not necessarily part of folklore there were a few there's a few references to silver bullets being effective against vampires in folklore um i uh like i found i found this one i found this one interesting interesting story it was it was it was from the 1800s and someone someone was asked it was in like i think it was in a british it was in a british paper or something like that someone's actually kind of did this this asked this question because they had uh they had seen an advertisement in france that talked about uh this belief of a vampire that lived in the in a mountain and it would it would uh it would kill whoever came came to the mountain and it would add on however many years that person had to live it would it would take those years and add it to its own like undead life and it was killed with a silver bullet um but there's very the 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 silver bullets for vampires it's it's it is there are a couple couple references but it's very it's very limited um for garlic actually garlic is very well established in folklore um garlic was uh garlic for some for some reason garlic there were there are all kinds of of uses for garlic uh in in sort of in you know traditional uses for it they you know it was used as a uh, as a curative as to keep you know keep uh, you know bad animals away or keep the evil eye away and it was believed that garlic would keep vampires away so there people would take it they would put it around they would they would rub it into you know um uh, you know, around doors and stuff like that, or put it on their animals to protect their homes and their livestock from vampire attacks. Um, so, so garlic's always had a lot. There, there's, there's always been kind of a lot of kind of beliefs surrounding surrounding garlic. Um, there's sort of an interesting sort of, you know, you sort of wonder, well, why, why was that the case? Um, one hypothesis for that is that, well, you know, like garlic has a really strong smell, right? Mm-hmm obviously well there was also a belief that vampires would often have a very strong smell because they were dead um so gar- the smell of garlic can mask other smells right so the smell of garlic could could mask the smell of a vampire and for so then so so you sort of take that and take it to the next level through through kind of you know sympathetic magic or something like that where by keeping the smell of the vampire away, you keep the vampire itself away. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's one uh, one hypothesis about about garlic. But that one was very much very much there, and Stoker knew that, and he put that in his book. Um, what was the last thing you asked me about? Oh, invitations, right? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting one. I write about that one too because that was one not knowing when I started researching it. I kind of figured that would be in folklore. Because I was like, it's sort of an odd, it's sort of an odd thing to like right. introduce, um, and it kind of has resonance to it about like, well, you know, inviting evil into your life and that kind of thing. Um, so I sort of, I, I very much expected to kind of find that, but truth be told, I didn't find it, or I didn't find it in exactly the way it's framed, say in Dracula or in other things where you have to invite the vampire in and then the vampire can come in, come and go. Um, there were some, there were some beliefs, there were some vampire accounts where, um, the vampire would say, wander through the village at night and they would call out to people 
at, you know, they would come to their door, come to the door and call out to people. And if you responded to them, then you would die. Um, so not necessarily like an invitation thing going on there. You're not inviting them. You were sort of just acknowledging that you were there. And by doing so now, you know, you were, you mm-hmm. were kind of cursed by the vampire and you would die or something like that. Um, there were actually some beliefs where the vampire would only ever call out uh, like two times or three times, depending on the place. Uh, so you'd have to wait for an extra call. And then you knew it was like a friend and not a vampire. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I had this vision of just people, like every time they go to someone's door, they're like, hello, hello, hello. Uh, <laughs> um, and and there was, a, there was one story where this vampire uh it's about this 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 uh kind of young young couple uh this this woman's this woman's uh love d- passes away he dies and she doesn't know and then he comes to her comes to her house at night but he's a vampire now and because because her house i, I believe that the phrase they used was clean and holy because the house was clean and holy he can't enter it so he he has to convince her to leave her house to come with him. So there's another kind of instance where, you know, the vampire can't enter the dwelling. Again, it's not the same as an invitation because she doesn't, She it's not that the vampire tries to trick her into inviting him in. He has to get her out of the house. Um, so there's a few different kinds of things in folklore that sort of start pushing in that direction and that sort of thing. Um, but ultimately it is Stoker who definitively says oh you need to invite the vampire in there's actually another uh another uh like a short story predates stoker called the mysterious stranger where this vampire convinces this this family to invite him over but in that story it's never quite made clear if he actually needed the invitation or if he was just kind of toying with them because he does have this sort of like dark kind of humorous personality uh where he uh, he kind of like you know, uh, like sort of toying with the people in a way. Mm-hmm. So that story may have also influenced Stoker. Um, but if you're go- if you're looking to say who says it in black and white, vampires have to be invited in. That was Stoker. How about crossing water and they have to be under the earth of their homeland? Um. So there are there are beliefs about vampires in water that they can't cross water or running water or salt water there was an island uh it was a, a greek island where supposedly all the vampires would be taken and they were stuck on that island so they couldn't they couldn't leave it because of the water uh surrounding it there's various beliefs around running water um you know it, it was talks about you know after a funeral people would go would would pass would pass over a river uh, something like that, which would keep like the malevolent spirits away. I'm not sure if the I'm not sure if the idea behind running water has to do with kind of the idea of um, purification. Um, and because you, you also figure, you know, uh, if if people are you know, you know, our, our distant ancestors, right? If they're looking for a source of water, you want running water and not stagnant water. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if there's kind of this interpretation of like running water is 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 you know, is safe for you. And thus it, it makes the world safe or something or something like that. Um, uh, but that's so, so, so vampires in water, it, it is, it is there. It's not, it's not always there. It's not like people were digging ditches around cemeteries to fill with water and keep the vampires out. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, it comes up from time to time, but it certainly isn't, uh, 
isn't um you know uh an invention of fiction um what was it what was the other one um that you asked? well that, that was just oh, the, the dirt the, yeah, dirt, the dirt like dirt, you could lay it they could put dirt in the coffin and then they can cross over yeah so here, here's the, <laughs> the here's work the around <laughs> the work around they're getting sneaky so here, here's the here's the interesting thing you know because that that's very prevalent in 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 dracula right in stoker's dracula where he has all these these boxes of earth shipped to you know shipped to london and and put around strategically so he can survive there and stuff like that um that vampires vampires were not world travelers in folklore <laughs> right they they weren't taking trips and you know um you know go going uh going around you know they were they were a local threat they were an immediate threat um they they and they had to be, they had to be dealt with within you know kind of within that community um i i don't think it wasn't necessarily a thing where like these undead would be kind of uh, engaging estate agents and traveling the world and stuff like that. That's more of a, that's kind of a Gothic fiction uh, sort of, sort of thing. Um, and obviously, you know, there's interpretations for Stoker of, you know, he was, uh, you know, he, he might, he might've been sort of playing upon, you know, fears of, of people from other countries or something like that. Uh, and that sort of thing. But for, for vampire folklore, vampires usually kind of, they, they, they would stay put. There actually was, there actually was a, a belief uh, in in one uh, in one culture where after so much time the vampire would kind of stop being a vampire if they lived if they like survived long enough and they would just sort of go off and kind of have a new life uh, as in a, in a new village somewhere and they just sort of like show up as like a new person <laughs> um, and I don't think they they weren't like a vampire they weren't mm -hmm. like a threat anymore they would just like get a job and be normal people again which is sort of an interesting idea that over time the vampire would kind of just go away there's and there's a few there's a few different kind of variants of that where some people where some some traditions held that the vampire actually had a limited lifespan uh mm -hmm. in the grave like oh it only lasts for 30 days or, or so many months or something like that um so i think that 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 kind of notion of the vampire just sort of leaving uh might have might have come from that but yeah the 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 needing the earth and moving moving the earth the va vampires weren't weren't uh they, I don't think they had, they, they weren't organizing big moves or anything. They kind of, they stayed close <laughs> to home. <laughs> so when did, uh, at what point did uh, vampires become minions of Satan? And then they were able to use things like crosses and holy water to fend them off. Mm. So, you know, vampires, you know, traditionally, you know, they were feared. They were thought to be, you know, they were they were evil, right? They were mm -hmm. they were supernatural evil. And so, well, how do you how do you combat something like that? Well, you you would turn to um, your religion, your faith. Uh, so, you know, a lot of our a lot of the vampire accounts that we have and stuff like that, they are from they are from you know places uh, and, and communities that were Christian. So uh, to them, it, it was sort of a I think a natural thing. That they would say, well, you know, we're dealing with a supernatural evil, an evil threat. Well, we have to turn to, you know, the source of goodness, right? So that would be, say, the, you know, so they would look to like the church and the, the you know, crosses and and holy water and that kind of thing. So you certainly have, uh, you have accounts where, you know, like there there was one instance where, you know, the the people were being, I think it was in Greece, they were being terrorized by a supposed vampire, and so you know, the priests were going around and they were putting holy water on. Uh, 
on all the doors. There's actually one story that I I like where this this uh, this person uh, they're like you know they're on their wagon going to like this village and they pass by a cemetery and uh, there's a person at the cemetery standing outside the cemetery who like you know asks for uh, asks for a ride. And it turns out to be a vampire. So they so they've they've picked up a vampire and they're they've you know they've got them in their in their you know their wagon, uh, and they go into the village, and they as as they they come to every house, you know they they get to the gates of of the house and the gates some of the gates don't have locks on them whatever but they're closed and they have a cross on them, and each one of those gates the vampire says ah oh, shut tight, so the vampire can't enter them. And then they finally come to one house, which the gate is closed. It has an immense lock on it, but there's no cross. And the vampire goes right by the lock. It unlocks it, goes right in and, you know, drinks the blood of the people that are in there. <laughs> and so, you know, it's it's this kind of story that illustrates that just that cro- by putting the cross there, you've locked out the vampire, the the the, the big, massive lock that didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. It wasn't bound. It's not bound by those rules. Interesting. Yeah. So, so when did it become okay or allowed for a werewolf to be able to kill a vampire? So that, so the whole, so that's interesting. Werewolves, I think in modern times with movies and stuff like that, we like (laughs) to kind of, we like to put supernatural things into boxes, Mm -hmm. right? So this is a vampire and this is what the vampire this is its strengths and its weaknesses, and this is what it does. And this is the werewolf, and this is what it does. And this is a, a witch, you know, an evil witch, malevolent witch. This is what the witch does. Um, folklore isn't that way. Supernatural beliefs aren't necessarily that way. There's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of influence and evolution between all these beliefs. So, um, you know, you, you get vampire beliefs influencing werewolf beliefs or you know you get beliefs about witches influencing vampires and they all kind of evolve um and you see that you see these different influences so um you know there were beliefs that someone who was a werewolf in life would become a vampire in death right um you have accounts where you know vampires turn into like dogs and things well that's kind Mm -hmm. of like a werewolfy thing to do right Um, there was a belief in, uh, it was in Normandy that a werewolf was actually born out of, uh, a corpse, a person who had been damned. They, they would, it would come back to life as a wolf, as a werewolf. Um, you know, but it wasn't a van, it was just, it was like a vampire, but it just was only ever a wolf, you know? So you have, you have these different things kind of playing on each other. Um, so it's not it's not necessarily like, you know, in, in kind of modern movies where like all oh, the vampires and the werewolves are, are are at war with each other. Right. Like that's there's uh, mm-hmm. there's movies like that. Um, it really it depended, you know, it depended on 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 the beliefs, but it was um, it was different. You had in folklore, you had, you know, witches turning people into wolves, cursing them and stuff like that. You had witches that could turn into wolves. You know, it really it's it depend it depended. Hmm. Are. Vampires strictly like from Europe area or is there like African vampires and Egyptian vampires and things like that? Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, obviously wherever you go, you have, you know, you have different beliefs about, um, you know, 
afterlife and 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 death and what happens and stuff like that. I mean, you look at you look at Egypt and stuff, and you have sort of um, you know uh, the uh, the uh, the you know there's the undead world, you know that Osiris ruled and stuff like that, right? Um, so you know it, we often think of vampires as uh, as being um, very you know we Transylvania, right? That's 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 what mm-hmm. we think of, and you know. Uh, and you know obviously thanks to bram stoker uh you know transylvanian <laughs> vampires are are forever are forever linked uh one of the article one of the articles stoker read in his research was called trans it was called like transylvanian superstitions um but so obviously vampires are present in you know eastern europe um so you know romania and bulgaria and you can start to kind of move, move the radius out um this tradition in uh serbia um, Russia, um, but then you, you go uh, Greece. Greece has uh, there's a lot of vampire tradition in Greece where they, where it's known as a vrikalakis. Um, uh, in the Nordic countries, there is there is uh, vampire beliefs there. Um, in uh, in the UK, in the Great Britain, there were there's different stories of, of vampires or revenants. Um, even uh, in India and uh, Turkey. Uh, China, the Qiangxi in China. Um, so you have you have beliefs around you know the threat of the dead in various kind of countries and in cultures um, throughout you know kind of throughout those, those regions and even in um, the United States uh, there were accounts from New England mm-hmm. of uh, vampire beliefs. Um, where you know, and they did. They didn't use the term vampire, but they believed that the dead were causing illness in the living, and corpses were uh, exhumed and you know mutilated in different fashions uh, to try to you know save lives. Uh, and that ha- that happened in New England. So you you know you it's it's pretty interesting. You get these kind of you know these beliefs. I think kind of spread out and around, and I think they they you know interpret in different ways and i think they they probably were you know different probably cultures and places came up with came up with them independently because i think it all comes down towards you know a fear of death and then you know by extension a fear of the dead that mm-hmm. you know they could bring the living closer to death hmm. how about the vampire's use of mesmerism yeah so that's 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 another one that that uh it's it's pretty uh, you know obviously kind of get gets a lot of coverage these days, folklore not so much. Um, I I looked for it. I found like one. I found probably one example, and it it was this. Uh, it was it was an account where this uh, this vampire is terrorizing this 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 village, and he meets up with a soldier and uh, for some reason he starts palling around with this soldier and they go to a wedding. And the the vampire like, you know, starts terrorizing the wedding, and he puts the bride and the groom to sleep, and then he he takes blood from them and puts it into vial and like puts he takes blood out of them and puts it into vials. Uh, the thing about that story though is you could say like, oh well, that was kind of hypnosis. He puts them to sleep or whatever. But he the in this tale the vampire was an undead warlock, so like he had met like. He had magic, so it could have just been that he knew how to do magic in general. Um, 
but beyond that, I, I don't, you don't really, you don't really see vampires using mesmerism or, or hypnotism. I think that very much came out of the 19th century literary tradition. I think there was, there was a lot of interest in those kinds of topics in, you know, Victorian times. So it got included in a lot of those stories, I think, because, you know, it was probably audiences found it appealing mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, you know, made for a better made for a better story <laughs> um but no normally you think vampires are kind of uh they're attacking people in the night and people you know or or sometimes even sometimes even during the day um you know and they're just sort of attacking people it's not necessarily that they're controlling them in any fashion you know with their minds hmm. so how uh, you know mention that's why i forgot like he's mentioned during the day like you know the vampires that we're all familiar with can't go in sunlight yeah, that's that. So that's that's another one that that's one that you think it stands to reason too, right? Like, you know, the sunlight, the day, the the you know, the kind of uh, positive associations we have with the sun, right? Mm-hmm. Um, kind of you know, dispelling the night and the vampire is you know, this dark, evil creature, right? So it's of the night, and the daylight would dispel it, um, and so daylight should destroy this vampire, right? Um. Makes for a great movie, certainly, where, <laughs> you know, you have the vampire out in the sun and it starts like, you know, it just catches fires, turns to dust or whatever. Great, great, great effects. Um, in folklore, that doesn't happen. Vampires are never killed by sunlight um, in folklore. Um, there are some cases where vampires aren't bothered at all by sunlight. You have some accounts where, you know, people say it was, you know, noon and the vampire was, you know, going, walking through the fields and attacking people or something like that. Um, in folklore, they are normally, they are normally active at night. People, you know, these tales usually are, you know, people are in their homes asleep and they're attacked by the vampire. Um, so they're very much nocturnal in the stories, but there's nothing about the sun that's actually going to kill them. Mm-hmm. At best, in in folklore, um, there are some tales where the vampire is made lifeless by the sunlight. So there's a couple different stories where you know the 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 heroes you know going to be uh, attacked by the vampire or something like that, and then the sun comes up, and then the vampire either sort of falls lifeless or it sort of disappears or or what have you. Um, but that doesn't kill them. And the stories make it clear that it doesn't kill them because then usually something else has to be done to actually kill the vampire. So at best, the sunlight kind of makes them inanimate again. Um, but at, at worst, um, the sun doesn't, doesn't really do anything. Um, the whole notion of, of sunlight harming vampires, it came from a movie um called Nosferatu it's from the 1920s mm-hmm. um it's a black and white german german film silent film um i'm not sure if you've seen it uh-huh. or yeah um and you know for for those listening even if you haven't seen it you've probably seen some imagery from it um because it features a uh, kind of a sort of famous na- famous vampire now uh character uh you know his name in the movie is Count Orlock, but you know, people just think of Nosferatu and he has the, you know, this bald head with these pointy ears and pale and these kind of two front rat like <laughs> teeth and like the long fingernails. And, you know, there's all this, it's, you know, it's a silent and, you know, uh, you know, impressionist film. So there's a lot of shadow work in it, you know, and you see like this wall and the shadow of the vampire appears uh, on it and stuff. 
it's it's a great it's it's a great film um obviously you have to sort of uh you know <laughs> prepare yourself that it's a silent it's a silent black and white film so you're just listening to music the whole time with title car you know with with cards and stuff like that um but that movie actually introduced this notion of of the of the son uh killing the vampire so the the whole the whole deal behind this movie is pretty interesting. Uh, it was, uh, as I said, a German film. The production company was called Prana Film, and they wanted to do a Dracula movie, um, but they did not get the rights to Dracula, um, and so they decided to change some of the elements of the story in order to avoid getting sued. So they changed the character names, you know, so it's not Count Dracula anymore. It's Count Orlock. Um, and they changed some of, you know, the, the plot line, some of the details and stuff like that. And so one detail that has changed is how the vampire is killed. So in the in the movie, the, uh, you know, the heroes have this like book that kind of explains vampire folklore. So they use this book to kind of defeat him. And it talks about this ritual where someone has to willingly give themselves up to the vampire so the vampire can feed on them for the whole night and then uh, until morning. And then when morning comes, the vampire will be destroyed. And so that's what happens. Um, uh, you know, one of the uh, heroine in the film, she, she gives herself to Count Orlock and he, he, you know, he spends all night there. And then as he's leaving, uh, the, the dawn breaks over the horizon and he's crossing in front of a window. And there's this great kind of scene where he kind of puts his hand up and turns dramatically. And then there's a, then there's a, you know, a frame change. And then mm-hmm. it's, there's like smoke rising from, from the ground. There's a cut there and then there's smoke. Um, it was the 1920s, you know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so that, so in that scene, the sunlight kills the vampire. And that's what, that's what introduced this concept. That's what, that's what happens. Um, but funnily enough, there's a couple interpretations to the ending of this, of this movie, right? So you can take it to be, okay, well, the sun comes. So she, she, she sacrificed herself and thus kind of tricked the vampire into staying until the sun comes up and the dawn kills him. And that's what kills him. Or you could interpret it as, well, it was a ritual to kill the vampire and the ritual needs all of its components. So you needed the willing sacrifice and the sunlight to destroy the vampire. Um, and if that was the intention, then I think it's interesting because, um, you know, this kind of this sort of trope we have of the sun killing, killing vampires might've actually come from kind of a misinterpretation of, of the filmmaker's intent. Mm. Um, but to get back to, to Prana film, um, their, their little maneuver to avoid uh, copyright infringement did not work. And uh, Bram Stoker's widow sued them. Um, and a judge actually ruled that all copies of the Nosferatu movie were to be destroyed. Um, but thankfully, uh, some, uh, some copies survived that purge and uh, we still have the movie today. <laughs> um, and it's, it's, it's really a great film. It's, it's sort of wonderful shots, wonder, you know, wonderful mm-hmm. visuals um uh but uh again you know it's you know if if anyone is going to watch it just be prepared that it's you know it's a very old film so it, you know you have to go into the, the right state of mind i guess <laughs> so at what point does like eroticism enter the scene that again i think you know i think it sort of develops more and more but probably the 19th 19th century literature again 
you know, you in like in Dracula and stuff. R- really, um, there's a number of sort of vampires uh, that kind of have these kind of these, you know, undertones or whatever. Um, and again, it was you know, gothic fiction. There's you know, there's this kind of you know different parts that 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 might have some some degree of you know kind of a sensual sensual vibe to them. You certainly see it in in Dra- in in the the Dracula novel. Um, uh, you know, one of the first uh probably like the 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 first kind of vampire work of fiction that really kind of set it on this trajectory and we'll say you know erotic or or you know these kinds of attractive alluring vampires mm-hmm. let's say right because that's that's kind of the thing nowadays where you have you know these these hunky vampires and they're so cool and uh you know they're they're young and beautiful forever right which is uh you know quite quite the alluring concept and quite kind of different from what the folklore, uh, <laughs> what the folklore would, would, would have, uh, would have taught. But in, uh, if it was the 1820s, you had this book called The Vampire comes out. It's a novella, excuse me. Um, so this novella, it comes out and it was supposedly written by Lord Byron, the famous poet. So a lot of attention comes on this, this, this book. And the main, the, the, uh, the antagonist of the book, the, the kind of the villain, uh, is this character named Lord Ruthven. And he is this kind of mysterious, suave, kind of alluring character that people are taken with. Um, and, uh, this, this young man ends up kind of traveling with him and he starts to realize that, uh, Lord Ruthven has this, uh, kind of detrimental effect on anyone he becomes involved, you know, involved with or, or, or meets. And he ends up realizing that Ruthven is in fact uh, a vampire. Um, and it, uh, it turned out that this story was, uh, was not written by, uh, by Byron. It was in fact written by Byron's personal physician, um, uh, John Polidori. And, uh, both 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 men try to kind of set the record straight, but the damage was was done and, and it very much got attributed to Byron. Um, but apparently Polidori and Byron did not get along well at all. Um, and so the what people kind of assume is that Polidori based Lord Ruthven on Lord Byron. Uh, so that novella kind of presents a turning point with vampires where now suddenly like they're not these kinds of scary bloated smelly blood around the mouth corpses that are you know suddenly you know Mm -hmm. in someone's bedroom strangling them drinking their blood you know they're suave sophisticated um upper class high society types um that are you know kind of infiltrating and i think that that kind of takes it takes it in this direction um, you know, th- this idea of, you know, these, you know, even in Dracula, right? He's Count Dracula and he's mm-hmm. this kind of mysterious nobleman who's now looking to infiltrate London. Um, and then, of course, you know, you can take it through through modern vampire works and and uh, and movies and stuff like that, where that's very much like kind of a given that the vampire, uh, you know, you you're much less likely in, in kind of modern movies, you're much less likely to run into a vampire at the cemetery. You're more likely to run into them at like, you know, a high society ball or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, and I think a lot of that too comes from what was, what was resonant with the Victorian readers, 
right? Like, you know, people who were, who were, you know, reading these you know, novels and there was, there was a very popular, there's another one, a very popular uh, Penny Dreadful in the, I think it was the 1840s called Varney the Vampire. It was, and he was Sir Francis Varney. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what, what intrigued probably the readers of, of all of, you know, this kind of Gothic fiction was that, oh, you know, the vampire, you know, I could be at a, at a, at a gather, you know, you're at a gathering and you're, you're meeting well-to-do people. And one of them, could be could be dangerous right could be this van could be this vampire um and i think that probably resonated a lot more with people than you know uh a, a rural farming community let's say that you know is being attacked by you know from a vampire in the local cemetery um that probably that wasn't necessarily you know and and you know that probably didn't didn't have the same kind of interest for someone who was looking to you know buy buy something to read um i think that i think that kind of the high society vampire was probably more intriguing to Victorian readers uh, and kind of maybe presented something more romantic and uh, something that maybe hit home a little bit more that, you know, you might meet, you might meet a vampire in, uh, you know, in a friend's parlor. (laughs) How about the idea um, that if you drink the blood of the vampire, then you will become a vampire yourself and have immortality. Yeah, I mean, you probably yeah, you probably don't want to do that. Doesn't sound like a good idea. Uh, <laughs> so, the notion of um, you know how to create a vampire, let's say, um, it, with our in kind of in movies and shows, you know, in pop culture, the vampire. You know, there's a very sort of you know clear ways you get a vampire, and usually, in order to get a vampire, you need to start with a vampire. Right. So maybe, you know, maybe you're bitten by the vampire or maybe you consume the blood of the vampire or something like that. But somehow to get a vampire, you need to have a vampire. Um, that was not necessarily the case in folklore. So it was believed that if someone had been um, been been terrorized by a vampire in life, um, been attacked by them or whatever, they could become a vampire in death. Um, but it's important to note with that, uh, that, you know, in movies and stuff, like it's kind of an immediate thing, you know, like, you, you know, you're attacked by the vampire or the, the, you drink the blood or whatever, and you're a vampire in like days, right? Like that's kind of, that's kind of how it goes in, in like a movie or something like that. And it, you know, helps the plot too, that you, you're moving things along. Now the person's a vampire and you can get on with the story. Um, but in folklore, y- the person could live their whole life after being attacked by the vampire and then become a vampire when they, when they died 30 years later. Right. So it was like something that like stayed with you. Um, so whenever you died of whatever else ultimately caused you to die, um, then you would, uh, you would become a vampire. There was this one account of, uh, of, um, of, of this man who uh, he, he, ha- he, he passed away um and he was thought to become a vampire because he had said oh earlier in my life i was attacked by a vamp i was i was you know attacked by a vampire and you know i uh i think he he as the story goes he he said he had taken the blood of the vampire and smeared it on his face and had eaten the or or he had consumed the blood or something like that and the dirt from the from the grave um and like that was like well you know you got rid of your vampire problem but eh, you might become a vampire now too um (laughs) So there was there was that kind of um, 
that kind of problem there. Um, so that could happen, but in that, actually in that same account. So this, 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 this vampire, you know, he, he terrorizes a village and it's, you know, they ultimately deal with the vampire and they, uh, they get rid of the problem. Five years later, another, they get another vampire in the village. Well, how did this happen? As the story goes, what the people believed was that the original vampire, Arnold Paul, he had attacked uh, the livestock as well. He had, he had, he had taken the blood of the livestock. And so someone ate the meat of the livestock that had been attacked and now that person became a vampire when they died you know five years later of of, you know whatever they died of um but in folklore like there was a bunch of things that could cause you to to uh to become a a vampire there were there you know there were different kinds of uh notions where oh if a cat jumps over the corpse oh that might become oh it might become a vampire um, you know, uh, if, you know, certain, um, uh, like if you're like, you know, certain number of sons or that, that son will be the, va- be a vampire. Um, there were a lot, a lot of people who, um, who did mat who, who, uh, did black magic, right. That they, they would become vampire. If you were thought to be like, you know, like, as I met, actually, I referenced that earlier story of like a warlock. Mm-hmm. If you did, if you did, if you dealt in black magic, or witchcraft or whatever that was like that was a a very likely you know very likely scenario then that you would become a vampire um if you uh if people committed suicide um that you know you know or people who were evil in life they might become vampires or even sometimes it was just people who were fated to be vampires they'll become vampires so yes you had the whole notion of the vampire causing vampires um you know, so people who were killed by the vampire, they might become vampires. People who had been terrorized in the past in some fashion could become vampires. But there was this whole slew of other things that could make you a vampire, too. Again, it's this notion that, you know, it's it's evil. This, you know, it, it, you know, it, it's um, a supernatural evil. So it's not it's not it could be from another vampire, but it could be from these other these other issues as well. Hmm. Yeah. And, so- yeah. I mean, the, the whole notion of, you know, I mentioned witchcraft and magic like. You know, there was there were belief like it, there was this belief uh, the Strigoi, and the Strigoi could be living and they were witches, or they could be dead and they were vampires. So like it was all kind of one. It was all part of of their sort of life cycle of of they would be a, a sort of an evil witch in life, and then in death they would be uh, they'd be a vampire. So either way, they they were the Strigoi, and then the the dead ones would teach magic to the living ones. Um, so you have, so again, you have this, 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 uh, kind of close connection, you know, sometimes with, with beliefs in kind of malevolent witchcraft. So when did the vampires arrive in New Orleans? Uh, (laughs) you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a shame. I would be in so much of a better position to answer that question because I actually had a trip planned to New Orleans, um, earlier uh earlier in september but unfortunately i had to cancel it um because of the hurricane so i am i am hoping to uh i'm hoping (laughs) to get back there and i'm hoping everyone is doing well there um but i was actually going to go on some vampire tours i was going Mm -hmm. to talk to some some vampire people there and there are a few there are some um vampire legends there that i actually i i uh was going to be researching a bit uh, ahead of my trip um, so, uh, 
at this point, I'm probably not in the best in the best position to answer because <laughs> I didn't get to go. Um, but obviously, it really it really came uh, to prominence. I think you know with uh, you know with you know interview with the vampire and you know in that whole book series um, that certainly I think um, really tied you know you know uh, sort of our mo- you know modern vampire stories with New Orleans. Hmm. What do you think it is about New Orleans that makes people associate it with with that? Do you think it's all the uh, voodoo that uh, ha- history that's there? Oh, oh, you're killing me! I really, I, I, I'm, I really wish I had gone on this trip, and I so wanted to. I'm so disappointed. <laughs> I, I kind of live. Not... I live like two hours away from there. Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, have you gone on any of the vampire tours? I haven't. I was supposed to go on a tour to go see the grave of a uh, Marie Laveau. Yeah. But we couldn't go because of COVID. We had to cancel um, it. Oh, yeah. I've heard a lot of the the um, cemeteries. Some of the cemeteries, I think, have been closed or something like that. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I, I, if I had gone, I, I probably could have given some wistful accounts of, of the magic of New Orleans <laughs> and the, the mystique um, that, that it has, especially in the French quarter. Um, I think there's, you know, as I understand it, there's, there's, uh, rich culture there, rich heritage. Um, and you know, you know, there's, there's supernatural beliefs and, and, you know, kind of, you know, mad, you know, kind of a, a mystical mm-hmm. quality to the place. So I think it fits it very well, you know, especially when you get into the kind of, you know, sort of, uh, alluring, mysterious vampires that we like, so much, you know, kind of in modern fiction, um, you know, it, it doesn't seem like what what better place because it has it has that old world charm, right? And a vampire is supposed to be really old, but it's set in the new world, right? So, I I, I think it, it does seem like a, a wonderful setting for it, and I do hope I do hope to get there at some point. Hmm. So, if you had to choose a favorite modern vampire series, would you choose one? Vampire Diaries, two, the Interview with the Vampire series, or Blade. <laughs> you know, I I'm probably not as plugged into <laughs> to mod to modern vampire series as I should be. I've seen some bits and pieces of of some of these different things. I did like the Blade movies quite a bit, um, but and I mean I mean the Interview with the Vampire film I thought was really it was was quite good as I recall. Um, but it's, it's hard to say. I'm actually, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go off menu here. I'm gonna go with, with, with D and talk about a, talk about a a vampire series that I saw recently. Okay. Um, that, that I, I liked and I think is, is interesting because it shows, I think it shows the direction that vampires are going. Um, the show was called The Strain. Um, I think it's, I think it's on who, I think it's on Hulu. Um, and, uh, basically in it's, it's a, it's TV series. And in this series, van, the vampires, it's, it's, uh, vampirism is caused by like these parasitic organisms. Um, and it's, and it basically, they, they infiltrate the host, um, and they kind of slowly take over the host and transform their body. And then they turn into, uh, a vampire and it's uh the show's cool because like the vampires mm-hmm. develop these like kind of lunging these like lunging like tentacle things that come out of their mouth and attack attach onto the victim mm-hmm. um it was it was really it was really neat but so basically the kind of how the show works is that it's 
it's kind of taking the the you know quote unquote traditional things about vampires mm-hmm. or the things we think are traditional, right? Like the the sunlight and stuff like that. Um, but it's framing them in terms of kind of a scientific explanation, right? Because it's this parasitic organism. So the whole sh- like part of the show is like this doctor is trying to uh, you know at first like you know the the you know the the first people are infected and he's trying to figure out what what what's going on and these people they die but then they're coming back to life and so he's trying to figure it out and then he identifies you know uh what what um what the parasite is with the help of like this this uh kind of like elder this kind of uh this elderly guy who had dealt with the vampires you know back in Europe and stuff um but basically what the show is doing is it, it's it's taking the vampire and giving it a scientific twist so there's the scientific explanation of what it is. Oh, it's like a parasite. And other shows have done that too, where it's like a virus uh, mm-hmm. or something like that. So with a lot of, you know, especially with the, you know, the 19th century stuff and even, you know, in the more modern stuff, the vampirism is often, it's supernatural, right? It's a supernatural explanation to the, to the, va- to the vampire. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, this kind of curse or corruption or something like that. But I think with a lot with some shows now, they you know different creators are exploring. Well, what what could be a scientific explanation for that, and how could you then you know, use science to battle the vampire, right? So like they're going out with you know they're trying to use UV and stuff like that because mm-hmm. that's what's you know it's the ultraviolet that's hurting <laughs> the vampires, right? It's not like the sun, you know, it's it's the ultraviolet rays, uh, and the worms are, are sensitive to that. So I think that's that seems to be kind of a direction. I think that vampire fiction, uh, you know, in TV shows and stuff is is going is it's going the scientific route now because I think that's what resonates with people. Um, is you know maybe the the supernatural bit. I don't think it's going to go away, but I think you know t- scientific explanations kind of add some kind of interesting kind of new challenges to to writing it, and then you know kind of when people are watching it, um, and then I think by virtue of that. Then some of the religious aspects of 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 the vampire tales, right? Like the you know vulnerability to crosses and the holy water and all that. That kind of goes away because well now there's not really a scientific explanation for that. You know it's you know you can use science for the the ultraviolet maybe or like the silver like oh it reacts to silver in some fashion. Um, uh, those those sorts of those sorts of things. Uh, and I mean a stake through the heart. Well you know that that that, sh- that should work regardless. Um, but I think that's something that that is interesting. I'm curious to see where where things are are going to go with stories with that, where people are going to take it uh, in kind of the, you know, more of the scientific the science fiction. Right. So you're going from horror almost to science fiction mm-hmm. in a way or maybe blending them. Who is a better Dracula, Christopher Lee or Bela Lugosi? Oh, that's an oh, that's an interesting question. That's a tough one. I mean, Christopher Lee certainly had uh, more stabs at it, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, like 50. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, they're, oh, they're, they're both, I mean, they're, they're, they're both great. Very different takes on Dracula, right? Very, very kind of uh, different approaches. But I mean, I think for me, I'll, I'll, I'll go with the, I'll go with the classic Universal and say, uh, and say Bela Lugosi, hmm. uh, in the original Dracula, um, uh, you know, if I, if I, if you know, twist my arm, if you have to, if uh, if you have to pick a favorite, but Christopher Lee was also, you know, yeah, I'm, go, I'm going with Christopher Lee. I, I You're like, going with Christopher Lee? Yeah, I do. I liked him because he, 
he rarely ever even talked. Yes. You know, he always just like looked, <laughs> you know, it was all in his eyes. I think there's an interview with with uh, with Lee where I think he said something like he didn't he didn't talk much in the first Dracula because he didn't like the lines or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, which one was your favorite Hammer movie? Oh, God. I don't have to go with uh, Satanic Rites of Dracula. Dracula, yeah. I believe that had the silver bullet in there as well as yeah. like a, a w- w- yeah. I um. I think I have. I certainly haven't seen all the Hammer films, but of the ones I have seen, so I, for some reason I like Taste the Blood of Dracula. I thought that mm-hmm. one was. Uh, I thought that one was was uh, was pretty good. Mm. But um, when I was in when I was in London, I visited um, uh, Highgate Cemetery, and uh, Highgate Cemetery is ha, is kind of it, it's relevant to vampires in actually a few ways. There was actually there was kind of like this vampire, this sort of like vampire scare there in the in like the it was like the late 1960s um also people think that perhaps stoker was using highgate as kind of um inspiration when he wrote the scene about lucy in dracula Mm -hmm. but lastly they they filmed some of the uh the hammer dracula uh some of the dracula films at highgate um and there's like one scene where you can really see it because it has this very kind of distinctive architecture actually might have been in taste of blood dracula where they were at highgate I'm not sure, but uh, so anyway, that's that was it was kind of uh, that was a beautiful cemetery to go to in London, um, Victorian cemetery, very ornate, uh, and that kind of thing. But yeah, those are those are fun. Those are certainly fun movies. Yeah. So so, what's next for you? Are you going to write another vampire book, or are you going to move on to some other creatures of myth? So I um I've been I've been thinking about that a lot. I do I I do have some thoughts about another vampire book. Um, not sh- I'm not sure if I want to go in that direction here or not, but I've it, it keeps rattling around in my brain, um, kind of a, about exploring the topic a bit more. So I I might do that. Um, sometimes people ask me about werewolves, um, and I, I touch on them briefly in my current book. So. I could, I could certainly go in that direction. That might be, that might be kind of an interesting, uh, interesting topic to kind of, uh, sink my fangs into, um, (laughs) (laughs) something like some, something along those lines beyond that. I'm, you know, I'm doing, uh, I'm doing, uh, blog posts. I have a website locationsoflore.com. I'm actually trying to work on something right now for the Salem witch trials, uh, which is, uh, very kind of, you know, very interesting, uh, incident in, uh, in history. Um, so I'm trying to put something together for that. And I might actually kind of do like a little bit of a series with a, a few different locations in Salem um, that um, it's, which is, you know, quite, you know, quite, quite fascinating uh, history and very interesting event for, you know, variety of reasons. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of, that's kind of what I'm, what I'm thinking right now, but we'll see. Cool. Um, so before we wrap it up, where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your book? Sure. Um, so my website is locationsoflore.com. Uh, and on there, you can find links to all my uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, on that site, you can find a link for my book, which links to various places. If you just uh, to just find the book itself, it's um, Vampires of Lore, Traits and Modern Misconceptions. Uh, you can find it on uh, Amazon.com and um, online at Barnes and Nobles. Uh, or you can uh, ask your local bookstore if they can uh, get a copy for you. Awesome. Well, I'll post a link to your website and to the book in the notes of this episode so my listeners can get it and check you out and read your blog. Awesome. I hope you get to New Orleans soon. 
I, I'd like to. I hope to. <laughs> well, thank you again for taking the time to be on and hang on for one more moment while I play the outro. Thank you.